Today, we launch our journey into the second half of Paul's letter to the Romans. And as uh, we're getting our Bibles open, I hope you'll turn to Romans 9, where we're going to be studying. You just need to know, if you don't know already, that we are uh, beginning today to encounter one of the most mysterious and challenging chapters in all the Bible. Romans 8 is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest chapters in the Bible. And last fall, you may remember, I I called Romans 8 a summit from which you can look out and you can see so many different truths. But now we come to Romans 9. And if you've read it before, maybe you'll remember this. It it can feel like now all of a sudden we're down uh, deep in this dark canyon and the walls are high surrounding us and there's twists and turns and we can't really see ahead and we're not really sure we know the way out. But what I hope that you will discover with me in the next few weeks is that Romans 9, when we understand it properly, is also an incredible summit of glorious truth and wisdom and and yes, practical comfort for our day-to-day lives. Romans 9 is one of the most in-depth explorations of God's sovereignty and uh, what that means for human responsibility, really, in all the Bible. When we read Romans 9, uh, we, we think of theological terms like election and predestination. And if we've been around church for a while, maybe we think of historical terms like Calvinism and Arminianism. Romans 9 challenges us with questions like, is God truly in control of all things? Or does God choose who will be saved or do we choose? And because I know that uh, many will be wondering about questions like these and others, we're, we're going to uh, kind of face them head on today. And then in following weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to work our way verse by word, verse through all of Paul's thought uh, in these 33 verses. And, and I'm aware as uh, your pastor that some of you are really, really excited about today. You've been waiting for us to get to Romans 9. Some of you, you want to know what team Pastor Mike is on. That's what you're wondering. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. And as a pastor, I'm aware that some of you may leave today very confused, and some of you may leave today kind of angry. I hope not. But that's all okay as well. We're going to talk uh, in terms of four questions today, four questions about election and predestination. And I'm indebted in this message uh, for its structure and many of the thoughts to John Stott Um, to Tim Keller and also to J.D. Greer. And uh, I just am excited about what God, I think, is going to teach us today. And I want to begin here by just making really clear uh, that the Bible does indeed teach election and predestination. And I just want to say it outright. No one who reads the Bible honestly can really deny this. And so what the question really is, is what do those words mean? What do those doctrines mean? How do we interpret them? That, that's the question. How do we imply, apply them to our lives as we follow Christ? And it's interesting, the words themselves are, are pretty straightforward. And most people kind of intuitively recognize that they pretty much mean what they say. Election uh, comes from a, a Greek word that refers to God's gracious choice of those he saved. We, we get that, you know, an election is about choice um, in, in our context today. Predestination uh, is a word that literally means to decide beforehand, uh, to predetermine something. And if you read through the Bible, the Bible uses this word in several ways. But today we'll be thinking about it primarily in terms of salvation. And if this makes it easier for today, uh, we can, we're going to be thinking about these two terms pretty much synonymously. And, and before we, we get into Paul's teaching, with that being said, I, I want to give you a, a few words of kind of practical wisdom and counsel as your pastor. The first one is for us not to forget that the God of Romans 8 is the same as the God of Romans 9. The God that we were seeing in his glory and grace and beauty when we studied Romans 8, it's the same God we're talking about here in Romans 9. So as you wrestle in the weeks ahead with the mystery 
uh, of Romans 9 and you wrestle with your mind, please keep the beauty of Romans 8 before your heart. Second, let the Bible shape how you see God. This is a word that's about a call to humility. We all need to humble ourselves before the word of God. We all need to do our best to not import our assumptions onto God's word, to try to make God's word conform to the way we think. And alongside of that, we need to embrace the tension of difficult passages. Uh, Passages like Romans 9 challenge us, especially if they are kind of tearing down some assumptions that we have had. And, and many times, especially emotionally, this can be a real painful process. But you should know ahead of time that God will use that struggle to humble us and to also draw us closer to him if we will let him. And then finally, don't be surprised if all of this takes a long time uh, because it, it can really take a, a long season, even a lifetime Uh, to work through a hard text. And and we shouldn't be surprised by that because following Jesus is a lifelong journey and and no one understands everything the Bible teaches. Amen? I mean, we we need to admit that to ourselves sometimes. Um, No one understands everything the Bible teaches. I'm not standing up here uh, claiming that I do. And so we we should have um, kind of patience with ourselves as we work through Uh, these kinds of things, patience with each other as we wrestle together. See, let's just keep seeking God himself as we seek to understand because Romans 9 is hard, but it's not bad. Uh, Romans 9 is challenging, but as you will see, it is also glorious. God put this chapter in his word for a reason. And it is there for our good. It is there for our flourishing. And and when you look at the flow of Paul's thought and you're thinking about it, it it becomes clear pretty soon that it's not an accident that Paul moves in Romans 9 into this discussion of God's sovereignty immediately after those closing verses of Romans 8 where he declares that nothing will stop God's purposes in our lives, that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for us. See, what he's just said leads to what he's about to say. And here's the question that Paul is addressing as Romans 9 opens. I'm going to put it on the screen and maybe you'll want to write it down so you can think about it. He says, how can we be sure that what God has started in us, he'll actually finish? Ever ask that question about yourself? I think most of us have. How do we know that what God started, he's going to finish? How do we know that someone else, or maybe even we ourselves, we're not going to mess it up? And as as Paul says in Romans 8, maybe remember when we studied those who he foreknew, those who he predestined, he, he lays those things out there and he anticipates an objection as he's been doing many times in Romans, where where someone is thinking and maybe they speak up and they say something like this, wait, 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 Paul, what about the Jews? They were God's chosen people, right? They were the people God promised to always bless. God said they were his people, and yet we, we know they've rejected Jesus. Did God's promises that he would be their God fail? And if God failed with them, and this is where it gets real existential, how do we know that he won't fail with us also? So that's what Paul is anticipating someone will think. And that's where this gets really, really practical for us. Now, we're not going to go into detail about the first five verses today, but here's the setup. Um, uh, We're going to get back to it next week. In those first verses, Paul makes it clear that this is not an academic, this is not a philosophical question for him. He says, as Romans 9 opens, if I could, I would give up my salvation so that my fellow Jewish people might be saved. He says, I love them. They're my family. They're my friends. So that that just means what we're talking about here is not just some kind of academic, abstract, ivory tower, philosophical speculation kind of thing. This is deeply personal. 
to Paul. In verses 4 and 5, Paul acknowledges and he also laments the fact that Israel, of all people, they should have believed in Jesus. And he, he goes into this list of all these amazing spiritual privileges that Israel possessed. They were God's chosen people, God's adopted people. They had seen God's glory. They had received God's covenant and God's law. And they had received God's instructions for worship. And think about that. The instructions for worship were how do you get closer to God? They had received those things and no other people on earth had those things. And then he he says, and Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. He's Jewish himself. Paul, Paul is just saying, of all people, the Jews should have recognized Jesus when he came. They were a people of profound spiritual privilege. And the question has to be, what happened? What happened? And, and maybe more importantly, how was this not a failure of God's pr- purposes? And if God had failed them again, uh, how can we be sure he's not going to fail us too. So this is all what's running through the minds of those first people that heard this, this letter. And, and what Paul does in Romans 9 is he asks and then he answers four questions. And those questions give us insight into how we should understand election and predestination. And so, uh, like I said, this is going to kind of be an overview of this chapter today. And if you don't get it all, you can come back next week and hopefully we'll, we'll get some more together. But with that in mind, you can write this down if you're taking notes. The first question that Paul asks is, does God keep his promises? And he's dealing with this in verses 6 through 13. And Paul's answer to that question is, yes, he does. He's not going to fail to keep his word. And, and here's why, verses 6 and 7, Paul explains that not everyone who was born in ethnic Israel was a member of the true Israel. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Paul is just telling his, his readers, his, his hearers, he said, this is the way it's always been. From the beginning, being a true Jew, it was always a matter of the heart. It was never a matter of the flesh. And that means even back in the Old Testament, there's always a distinction, Paul says, between the Jews who are only so by heritage, by ethnicity, and then the Jews who had actually truly embraced Abraham's faith from the heart. That's, that's why Paul will write this in verse 8. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Again, he's just saying God's covenant with Israel was never about ethnic identity. It was always about faith in God's promises. He's saying the creation of God's people was never purely physical birth. It was not an automatic or a mechanical or a natural thing. God's people, Paul says, have always been created through God's sovereign, unconditional choice through God's promises. It's always been that way. And if you've been tracking closely in Romans, maybe you're remembering back all the way in Romans 2, where where Paul said toward the end of that chapter that true circumcision wasn't merely physical. It wasn't just the cutting away of skin uh, on the the body. He said it, it was instead the cutting away of spiritual deadness from the heart. True circumcision was always heart circumcision. And not everyone in the nation of Israel experienced that. Now to explain what he's saying, Paul gives two examples beginning in verse nine. He says, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And if you know the story, he's referring to Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He's already mentioned Isaac uh, in verse seven and Isaac is the son of promise, but Ishmael is not. And, And though Ishmael was biologically, physically Abraham's son, he was not a follower of God. And actually, when you read the story, you see that Ishmael was born because Abraham hadn't waited on God's promise. He got impatient and he had gone ahead and he'd fathered uh, Ishmael with uh, his wife's servant, Hagar. 
in a purely natural way. It was his decision, his will, his timing. And it was only years later in God's timing through God's power that Isaac was born. This miraculous birth to parents almost 100 years old. And every time I read that, I just feel really tired. You know, I, I, last, last weekend, we had two of our grandkids for like 48 hours. And it was so wonderful, so wonderful, especially when they went home to be with their parents. <laughs> I can't even imagine having a baby at 100 years old. But Paul is just pointing out that this is the way God always creates his people. We, we see this second example in verses 10 through 13. He writes, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that, and you might want to underline this phrase, God's purpose of election. That's the point here. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told, the older will serve the younger as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And don't get distracted by that last verse, okay? Come back next week. We're going to talk about it then. But the point I want you to see here is that Isaac, who was the child of promise himself, well, he had two sons, Esau and and Jacob. And God did not choose Esau, the older one, the one that culture would have dictated he should choose. Paul says that God chose Jacob as the son of promise. And notice when Paul says he did that, before they were born, before they were born. And Paul makes it clear why, before they had done anything good or bad. In other words, Paul is making it crystal clear there's nothing in this about them. Everything, it's all about God's purpose of election. See, Paul is saying that there have always been those two kinds of people in Israel and that God never had a relationship with the Ishmaels and the Esau's. And so that tells us that Israel's rejection of Jesus is not proof that sometimes God loses the sons and the daughters that he foreknew and he predestined. See, Paul is, again, just showing us This is how God has always worked, how God has always chosen his people. And if you go through the Bible, you will see this pattern time and time again. It is always God choosing. It is always people responding. It is never the other way around. And that's the first question that Paul answers. And that question leads naturally, leads directly to a second question Maybe you're already asking this question in your mind. And the question is this, is God's sovereignty fair? Is it fair? And Paul's answer to that question is, yes, it is fair. No, it's not unfair for God to sovereignly choose. In verses 14 and 15, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, have you ever asked this question? I mean, I've wondered about this. I've had many people over the years of being a pastor ask me about this. I'm confident some of you are pondering this, asking this in your head right now. You're just thinking something like, well, wouldn't this be wrong? I mean, for God to only show mercy to Jacob and not to show mercy to Esau. But I want you to notice something that's very important. It's embedded in the very meaning of this word. Mercy, by definition, rules out obligation. Mercy, by definition, rules out obligation. See, the word mercy, it, it means you're receiving something you do not deserve. And if you do deserve it, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. And so that means, this is what Paul is saying, if God doesn't show anyone mercy, you cannot say it was unfair for him not to show it because he doesn't owe it to anyone. Maybe you can track with this. This is the reasoning Paul is following. 
He, he would say to someone, maybe, are you saying that God owes someone salvation? And if I were to ask you that, I think pretty much everyone in the room here would say, no, of course not. Paul would then say, if you answered no, which is true, which is correct, Paul would say, therefore, if God owes no one salvation, then one of three things is possible. He is free to, to give it to, number one, all. God could do that. He is free, number two, to give it to some. God could do that. Or he is free, number three, to give it to no one, right? I mean, we, we accept it. We understand that. It, it's his choice. He is God, and we're not. One of the classic um, confessions of faith historically says in one of its uh, lines, God would have done us no injustice by leaving us all to perish. Have you ever thought about that? God owes no one salvation, not one person. He never has, he never will. He, he doesn't owe it to us. He's not obligated to give it to us. And what, what would be fair, actually, here's the truth, is that all of us be left in the condemnation that we have chosen for ourselves in our sin. That's actually what we studied about for Romans three chapters, Romans one through three, right? We chose to rebel against God. We suppressed the truth that was everywhere around us. We chose those things freely. That's who we are. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And it would have been fair if God had left us all in that place. And here's what that means for us today, Southwinds. The fact that any of us know Jesus in any way, shape, or form is nothing more than sheer grace. And so Paul is just saying, let's make sure that we're thinking clearly here. John Stott, um, in his commentary on Romans, says, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. He says, it, it sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it is not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. Here's the thing I want to say to you. If you've never really grappled with this or understood this, you don't want God to be fair to you. Do you understand that? You know, sometimes in this world, we say, I want justice. Don't ever say that about God and you, okay? That's not a good thing. We don't want justice. Justice is not going to be good for us. It's not going to turn out well. We want God to give us mercy. We need his mercy. And that's exactly what, what, what Paul is talking about here. See, no one deserves what God has done it's all according to mercy. Now, I'm sure that some of you are still saying, yeah, okay, I think I get that. But, but why? Why, do, why does God choose some and not others? And Paul explains in verse 16 that, that his choice has nothing to do with like our inherent goodness or whether or not we deserve it in any way. He writes, so then it depends, God's choice not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's all about mercy. And see, that means, if you can think about it like this, that God did not like, look down at people and choose the people who deserved it more. God didn't look across this world, across time, and, and look for the people who were more sincere. For those of us who have grown up our whole lives being being told that we are special and unique, you know, snowflakes, and we have amazing potential. Who knows what we could be in our lives? God never looked down at any one of us and said, I'm going to pick you because you have potential. It's not the basis of his choice. It never has been. It, it never will be. None of us have ever deserved it. None of us ever will. God chooses to bestow his mercy on people only and always because of his grace, because of his mercy. Now, this is important to understand. And you might want to write this down. You might want to talk about this in your life groups. This does not mean that God's choices are arbitrary. Like God just chooses people randomly. Paul never says, you can go back and read it for yourself and think about it, but he never says that God has no reasons for his choosing. He just says... 
that the reasons God chooses how he chooses doesn't correspond to any goodness in us. So God is not being arbitrary. He's not being random. Now, verse 17, Paul maybe gives us a little hint at God's reasons because he refers to God's purpose in not choosing Pharaoh. And he says that that was so that Pharaoh's resistance to God uh, would allow God to put his glory, to put his power on display. Maybe remember the story how uh, when God was preparing to lead his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, Pharaoh rejected God's command to let the children of Israel go. Pharaoh set himself up as the enemy of God's people. Verse 17, Paul refers to that and says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. And notice that interesting insight here. See, if you go back to Exodus, God's the one saying that. But here Paul says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, because the word of God reveals the mind of God and lets us hear the voice of God. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, Pharaoh's hardness of heart, it gave God an opportunity to show his power over wickedness and his loving commitment to saving his children that he wouldn't have had without that. Verse 18, Paul continues, kind of drawing a conclusion. So then... He, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, God is God. God does whatever he pleases. Do you believe that? God is God. God does what he pleases. He is God. And we need to worship him on that basis we need to trust that that God who does whatever he pleases will always be good and will always be just. And I just want to ask you, I just want to cause you to think, do you really believe that? Is he always good? Is he always just this sovereign God who does what he pleases? He concludes um, by saying, or this leads to him saying the, the third question or asking the third question we see in verse 19. And I, I want to phrase it like this. Isn't election unjust? It's kind of the flip side. Uh, he, verse 19 says, you will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if Pharaoh is just doing what God predestined him to do, how can God judge him for that? How can he be responsible for that? And again, I think many of us are kind of asking that question right now. It's kind of like if God chooses and God predestines who will believe, then how can he judge the people who just do what he determined they would do? And if you're wondering that, Paul's ready for you. His first answer to this is to show in Pharaoh that God's rejection of Pharaoh was consistent with Pharaoh's own choices. In fact, here's a question to think about that, that situation, who rejected whom first? Did Pharaoh reject God first or did God reject Pharaoh? And scripture does say, if you go back and read Exodus, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But if you read the story carefully, you will see that only happens after the sixth plague, which means if you keep reading back, you'll see that five times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In other words, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart comes after Pharaoh himself does it five times. And the point is that God is not to blame for Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh is to blame. And when people reject God in the scriptures, it's always described like this. And when Jesus in the gospel of Matthew lamented the Jews' rejection of him. This is Matthew 23, 37. Uh, this is what he said. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Not, I was not willing. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, you were not willing. That's what we are consistently told in God's word. I know this might hurt your brain a little, but C.S. Lewis correctly said that hell, um, the door to hell is always locked on the inside. And that is true. John Stott concludes, if therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. 
But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. Pastor D. James Kennedy, a Presbyterian pastor, he's gone on to be with the Lord a, a, a number of years ago. He used to tell a helpful illustration that he put himself in. And he said it was kind of like this. Let, let's say there were five of his friends. He said, five of my friends planning to hold up a bank. And I find out about it. And he said, I go to them and I plead with them not to do it. But they won't listen to me. He said, they push me out of the way. They head out. But he said, then I tackle the last guy out the door, the weakest one looking one, he said. And I wrestle him to the ground and I hold him there. And he said, the others go ahead and they rob the bank. And in the process, they kill a guard and they kill two civilians. And they're eventually captured and convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But he says, the one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. And here's the question that Kennedy asks. Whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and convicted and sentenced? Can they blame me, he asked. Of course not. And then he said, and this man who's walking around free, can he say, I am free because my heart is so good. I am free because I resisted temptation. And he also said, no, the only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. And then he concludes this. So it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of grace from the beginning to the end. Maybe though, you're still thinking, I'm not sure I, I see it. I'm not sure I get it, Pastor Mike. Maybe you're still asking a question like this. If this all is true, how then can a sovereign God still be good? And this may be the hardest question to wrestle with for most people. I, I have wrestled with this. It's, it's a struggle to kind of think it through. And I think, again, Paul hears in his minds the objection that a good God wouldn't do this. A, a good God would save everyone. Why would a good God let anyone die? And here's what Paul answers. Verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, if God uses your own free choices to reject him and he uses that to set up a display of his glory, can any one of us rightly accuse him of injustice? And if you say, well, I, I think a good God would have had different plans for his creation. Paul says, really? Everybody say, really? He says, really? You, you think you're wiser than God? That's really what he's asking. He goes on in verses 22 and 23 to say, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And here's a truth that will transform totally your life once you accept it and you begin to live out of it. The ultimate goal that God pursues in all things, including our salvation, is his glory. It's about him. Tim Keller says this, somehow if God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not see his glory. I don't think Paul is giving us much more than a hint here, but it is a very suggestive hint. For the biggest question is, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? And he says here, Paul seems to say that God's chosen course to save some and leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme we can imagine. This may seem strange to us, Keller writes, but that is the point. We are not God, and we cannot know everything or decide what is best. And I think the reason many times that we struggle with this is that 
Most of us, we are so accustomed to thinking about ourselves and about our interests and about our hopes and about our dreams and desires and our plans and agendas as the most important thing in the universe. But we're not. And that was a real good place for an amen. You guys messed up. I'm just telling you. We're not. God's glory matters more than anything I think sometimes it would be helpful for us to just take a clue from the structure of the universe. You ever thought about that? The human race, we're just a fragile organism on a tiny speck of dust planted in a remote corner of a medium-sized backwoods galaxy that is one of but billions and billions of such galaxies. And God is at the center of it all. God made it all. Go outside at night sometimes. And if you look at the sky and you think about what you are seeing, just a tiny, tiny part of it ought to be screaming at you, you're not the point. What's the point? God's glory. And God's glory, let me put it this way, is the greatest good in the universe. And I know, again, some of us who have spent our lives being told that we're the point of everything and that our happiness is the highest good in life. We may not like that, but I'm going to tell you it is true whether you like it or you don't. We're going to see more of this in the weeks ahead, but in verses 25 and, and 26, Paul just puts it out there that God allowing Israel to reject the Messiah, it opened the door for Gentiles, that's most of us, to be saved. You ever thought about that? And he quotes Hosea's prediction of God opening up the door of salvation to the Gentiles through the rejection of the Jewish people. Verses 25 and 6, he says, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Aren't you glad? See, because Israel rejected Jesus, people like us, (laughs) we were able to find him as Savior. And that, that means that even Israel's rejection of Jesus is ultimately serving a larger and better purpose, the inclusion of the Gentiles. And one day we're going to see that all of God's actions have a, a good goal. Paul's going to build on this in, in Romans 11. He's just kind of introducing the thing here. And so that brings us back to the question we started with. Why did Israel reject Jesus? And was that a failure on God's part? And in four different ways... Paul is answering and saying, no, God was not wrong to let it happen. And he was not wrong to judge them for the rejection. So why did they do it? Well, Paul answers that at the end of the chapter, verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, Paul's just saying Israel didn't reject Jesus because God appointed it. They rejected him because they wouldn't humble themselves and accept the gospel. They wouldn't accept that salvation would only come by grace through faith and not because of any of their goodness or any of their works. And that's where they got stuck. And honestly, let's be candid, that's where we usually get stuck too. Still works that way today. See, this is really just what we were seeing in Romans 1 through 3. We're all sinners. We all deserve God's judgment. We've all rejected God. We're all going our own way. And there's nothing we can do that will save us. Our works cannot save us. Only God's grace can save us. And so everyone, no matter when or where they live, has to stumble over this stumbling stone of the gospel. We all have to humble ourselves and admit the only way I'll ever be saved is just to receive God's grace and for God to show me his mercy, mercy based on his sovereign goodness, not based on anything I've ever done. Now, I'm going to talk uh, about this more when we gather again in the weeks ahead, but I want to be really clear 
on something. I don't want it hanging out there. And I'm going to just make this statement that I want you to understand, and we'll unpack it more later. God is absolutely sovereign and in control. The scriptures are crystal clear. But also, you need to know, at the same time, we are totally responsible for our real, authentic choices. Both of those statements are true. And you say, I don't get it. That simply means you are hearing those statements accurately. This is a mystery. We will never fully understand it, but it is what the Bible teaches, and it is what we must believe and accept. Now, I want to close with some questions that I encourage you to ask yourself. These are things that will help you process what Paul's been talking about. I'm going to put these questions up on the screen and explain them, and I think there'll be something you can talk about in your life groups. But here's the first question. Don't I believe in God's sovereignty and salvation in some way? And I'm going to answer that question for you because the answer is yes, everyone does in some way. See, there are some Christians and they deeply love and believe the Bible and they might say something like, well, I get the logic of what you're saying, but I just can't accept that God would leave some to die. I think God must always be doing everything he can to save everybody. And if you think that, I just want to ask you, I want to challenge you to look at what the scripture shows us because he is obviously not doing everything he can to save everybody in those terms, right? Can you acknowledge that no matter how you try to understand sovereignty, the sovereignty of God and responsibility of uh, of people that Eventually, you're going to have to accept that God is doing some sovereign things that don't fit in with what you're saying in some way. I'm going to illustrate it kind of like this. You remember the real familiar story of the Apostle Paul's conversion? It's in Acts chapter 9. He's on the road to Damascus. He's persecuting the church. God knocks him. um, I was about to say on something, but he knocks him off something. um, with his bright light, it's very dramatic. He says, I am Jesus. He says, follow me. And here's why I bring this up. That worked with Paul, right? Why doesn't God do that with everybody? Why doesn't God do that every day? I mean, he's God, right? He could do that if he wants to. Why not make sure everyone everywhere for all time sees with this crystal clarity who he is and how amazing he is. God writes the rules. He's God. He could do that if he wanted to, right? But he doesn't. Why not? It must be something about his sovereignty. Some people try to alleviate this difficult question of God's choice of some for salvation by by saying in in Romans 9, Paul's only talking about a national election. In other words, God chooses a people group like the Jews at one time, and now he's chosen the Gentiles. But but he doesn't choose individual people within this group. He, He lets them decide for themselves. But again, honestly, does that really help? Because if that's what you think, well, then the question is, why didn't God choose more nations? Why, why not reveal the Bible in all languages to all people at the same time for the last 2,000 years? And here's another one to think about. Why would God make the church? I mean, just look around, okay? Why would God make the church with all our sin and all our selfishness and all our shortcomings and all our failings? Why would God make the church the only vehicle for the proclamation of the gospel? Does that seem like a good plan to you? See, why, why, why would God not just like send a bunch of angels out to spread the word all the time? Don't you think if angels were flying around everywhere you could see them, that would help? I was just imagining some things. Why not, why not have Jesus, you know, appear in like a mile-high version of himself, standing in the bay between the Golden Gate and, and the Bay Bridge? And, you know, then the news networks would all pick it up and he could proclaim the gospel to everyone. Everyone would see it. Why not, you know just like hijack all of the channels on TV and all of the streaming platforms and all the social media platforms. God could just cut in every day and proclaim his message to everyone. Why does he not do that? I mean, he's God. 
He can do whatever he wants, right? Uh, we have to agree, I think, when you think about it, that God has chosen, for whatever his reasons are, to do it a different way. And sooner or later, we're all going to, if we pay attention to what the Bible says, we're all going to have to bow to the creator of the universe, to the judge of all the earth, to the giver of life and love. And we have to humbly confess that God does not owe anyone anything. Like Paul said, it's all about mercy. And that leads me to my second question I want you to ask yourself, and it's this. Do I really think that I am more merciful than God? If you don't like God's plan, if you're thinking, I don't know, if I was in charge, I think I might do it a little different. Do you really think you're more merciful than God? I mean, anytime you see in the Bible God's mercy contrasted to ours, God's always infinitely more merciful than we are, right? I mean, just think about it. We human beings rebelled against God's goodness and love and grace. What did God do? God sent his only son and he gave his life on the cross to save us from our sins. That's God's mercy. When, when someone cuts on, in on you in traffic, you want to ram them with your car and like drive them off the road, right? That's our kind of mercy. Why do we think that we know better than God. That's why Paul says in verse 20, why do you think that you, the created one, uh, are in a better place to tell God the best way to do things? I mean, again, just think for a moment how much power it took to create our universe. We, we believe God is infinite in power because we believe in the gospel. We believe he is infinite in goodness and in love. And if those two things are true, wouldn't God also be infinite in wisdom? Wouldn't God know better than us how to do things. And should it surprise us, therefore, that there's a lot about the wisdom of his ways that we cannot grasp yet? Let me give you the last one. Will I only obey God's clear command when I fully understand? Now, we're going to talk more about this as we keep going through uh, this, this section, especially when we get into Romans 10 and then into Romans 11. But I want you to hear, as we're just starting in Romans 9, the same God who sovereignly chooses some for salvation is the God who commands his people, that's us, say that's us, commands God, God commands his people to share the gospel with people who don't know him. And he talks about this. It's interesting. Uh, he talks about this very thing in Romans 10 and in Romans 11. And I'm bringing this up because a lot of people who hear talk, clear talk about election and predestination say, well, I think if God chose some for salvation, he determined he's only going to save some, then what's the purpose in me sharing Christ? And I understand how we might think that, but you need to hear that Paul never uses those truths to reduce our responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. And we just see this again and again in Paul's life. I already alluded to part of this at the beginning of chapter 9. He has this passion for his fellow Israelites to be saved. We're going to get into Romans 10 and in Romans 11. We're going to see him express that even more. And he's going to give us commands of what we're supposed to do to share the gospel alongside the Bible's clear teaching that God is absolutely sovereign. The Bible clearly also teaches that we are fully accountable and responsible to tell other people about Jesus. Do you understand that? We are responsible to obey his commands. See, the Bible teaches and we believe that prayer really moves the hand of God, that sharing the gospel makes an actual difference in the eternity of other people. I, I, I love what the old Presbyterian theologian A.A. Hodge once said, and I'm going to quote him. He said, does God know the day you'll die? And the answer, of course, is yes. Has God appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat, he asked. And the answer is to live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then he asks, if you don't eat and die, would that then be the day that God had appointed you to die? Hodge responds, quit asking stupid questions and eat. 
Because eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for you to live. See, we may not understand how God's sovereignty and our responsibility work together, but it doesn't matter. We are responsible to do what God has commanded us to do. So share your faith and trust God to work. And we're just going to make that real crystal, crystal clear here at Southwinds because next week we're going to start another season of Who's Your One. If you don't remember what that is, I don't have time to tell you today. You need to come back and we're going to talk about next Sunday our, 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 our responsibility to share the gospel, the good news with those who don't know Jesus yet. I hope that you are seeing in this what God has for us that God's sovereignty, God's election, God's predestination is actually something beautiful, something glorious. In the end, Paul's going to show us it's something comforting for us. That's what Paul is telling us here, that the God of Romans 8 that we love to read about, the God who graciously gives us all things, the God who makes us more than conquerors, the God who will never allow anything to separate us from his love for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. That God is the God who in his sovereign grace sought me and bought me and clothed me with his goodness when I had none of my own. That's who our God is. And that God, he's never going to let us go. Amen. So will you allow God to be God? That's the question, Southwinds. He is infinite in power and glory. He is infinite in goodness and love. He is also infinite in wisdom. God knows what he is doing and we can trust him. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father God, we, we love you. God, we need you. And we confess today you are God and we are not. You're the creator and we're the creations. You're father and we're your children, deeply loved and accepted in Jesus. Lord, as we confront these truths in your word that may boggle our minds, help us to receive them the way you intend them. Help them to be profoundly comforting, deeply assuring. Lord, we ask that you would continue in the days ahead to open our minds to your truth. And we pray, Father, all these things in your son Jesus' beautiful name and all God's people said.